last chapter of Hebrews, and uh, as the writer of Hebrews here is instructing us in many different things, basically, as we said here a few weeks ago, uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 is giving now some final application. Uh, we have certainly journeyed up the theological mountain uh, that Hebrews offers us, and uh, there have been some incredible things that we have been reminded of. And uh, we've drilled down uh, into in uh, chapters 1 through 12. And so we get to chapter 13 and he gives us some instruction of how to apply everything that we've learned. And so as we jump into chapter 13, verse 7, we see in verse 7 the Bible says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So those are all very, very practical, specific things uh, that the writer of Hebrews here is reminding us of. And so uh, there were many at this point here in the book of Hebrews, uh, as he's writing to this church, there are many who had come before them, and uh, they had paid the ultimate price for their faith. Now, you know, this is certainly uh, obviously post-crucifixion. This is uh, during uh, some of the most persecution that we've seen against the church as the gospel uh, began to spread. And so certainly there's this... Uh, fight against uh, Judaism, the Old Covenant, as we've covered many times in chapters 1 through 12. And so he says, hey, remember those people that have come before you. Remember your leaders, those who led you to Jesus, those who spoke the word of God to you. And so as we saw in chapter 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews' intention is that we finish well, that we run, if you'll remember a few weeks ago, that we don't limp towards the finish line, but that we burst through the tape at the end of life, completing the tasks for which God has in store for us. And tomorrow with Miss Elaine, we'll be able to celebrate uh, a life of a lady who loved Jesus and who finished well, that uh, ran through the tape at the end of her life. And so uh, it's something that, you know, we've been encouraged, we've been implored to do in chapter 12. And so he says, you remember those people, right? You know, those people that came before you. I've given a few examples here over the last several weeks. My grandfather passed away about a month ago, a uh, pastor that I served with uh, for years, uh, many years, years ago. Uh, he passed away. And uh, so I can give you many examples of people that have come before me and uh, who have led me in the faith and who have completed the mission that God had in store for him. And so he, he brings this to mind. And so as you think about those people... Uh, that have influenced your life for the gospel, those people that have led you to Jesus or have encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. He, the writer here says, consider the outcome of their way of life. Now the world today will tell you that the way of the life of a Christian is very subjective, right? The world says that it's all circumstantial and it's culturally acceptable. And so for us to follow Jesus, we are rapidly becoming the minority. I'm not talking about people who associate with Christianity. I'm talking about people who follow Jesus. And uh, so we're rapidly becoming the minority. And so I think it's interesting the verbiage that he uses here in saying consider the outcome of their way of life. That the things that they lived for, that the ways that they finished well, remember, consider the ways that that happened. You see, it's not just important for us to live uh, the life that God's called us to live in obedience to Jesus, but it's also important for us to do that for the impact of the lives of those that are around us. You see, every single person in this room has a very specific sphere of influence. And the people that you influence in your life, in your circle... I don't influence, and I probably never will. And it's the same that you could say about me. There's people in my life and in my sphere of influence that uh, I have an opportunity to speak the gospel into their life, and you're not going to have that opportunity to talk to those people. And you see, it's, it's the sphere of influence that God gives us for... And so God gives us influence in those people's lives, and it's the same thing uh, for you in your life. And so not as we finish well, it's not just that we would finish for our own faith, that we not would just stand before Jesus, although in and of itself is going to be a magnificent occurrence, but that when we stand before Jesus, He says, well done. We, we want to hear that, right? We want to stand before Jesus and have completed the task in which He has set forth for us. But we also want to be an example to those that we leave behind. The people that uh, live or grew up in your house. I want to influence those people that live and uh, grow up in my house. 
I want to influence those people that I have conversations with at work. I want to influence those people that I come in contact with because of why? Because I'm a representative, I'm an ambassador, uh, an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And so uh, as we see this, considering the outcome of their way of life, uh, it falls right in line with what's been spoken the last few weeks, not only from Hebrews, uh, but from Acts as well. Uh, remember this past Sunday, Pastor Tony uh, talked about living the gospel in your context, right? And so your way of life. And so he says, uh, don't just do this for your faith, but also for the example. He says, consider the outcome. Uh, in verse 2, or rather verse 7 of Titus chapter 2, uh, you'll see this on your handout here. It says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. And so we've been instructed here by Paul in the book of Titus to be a model of good works. How will the world know the Jesus that we follow? How will the world know the standard that we adhere to uh, if we don't model that, right? That was the uh, primary objective, uh, one of the primary objectives of Jesus uh, and the incarnation of God coming down as the Son of God. Jesus was to model for us what that looked like. He said in Luke 19.10, I've come to seek and to save those who are lost, right? And so Jesus came to save the world, and in doing so, He gave us a model of what it looks like to walk with God, right? Jesus is part of the Trinity. Think about this. Jesus is part of the Trinity, and yet when Jesus was on earth, what did Jesus do? What was one of the activities that Jesus spent a lot of time doing? The answer to that is praying. Now, Jesus is part of the Trinity, but yet He modeled prayer for us. And so as followers of Jesus, as image bearers of Jesus, of God the Father, what we ought to do is we ought to model, according to Paul here in Titus 2.7, we ought to be a model of good works. And we ought to consider uh, the way in which we live or our way of life. And so i got a couple of questions uh, that I think are, are good. They're useful for you and me as we consider the words that we speak and the actions that we portray in our life. So the first question here. Uh, is number one, does this lead people towards Jesus or away from Jesus? When, when we consider our responses to unfavorable situations, when things don't go our way, when someone doesn't do what we think they should do, when someone doesn't say what we think they should say, and we respond to that, we ask the question, will this lead somebody to Jesus or will this lead someone away from Jesus? These are questions that we should consider in our own lives as we consider our way of life. The second question here is how will others perceive this action? You see, there's things that you and I have an opportunity to do that aren't necessarily bad, okay? Uh, there are things that aren't necessarily bad, but they may, perceive, they may be perceived as bad. Right? So let me give you an example, and this is an age-old example. It's probably a silly example, but let's say that uh, one of my friends invites me, and he says, hey, listen, Pastor Matt, um, you know, there's this guy that uh, is uh, an owner of a local bar here, and uh, I've been talking to him about the gospel, and I would love for you to come with me and, uh, and share with him and, ha and have a conversation with him. And so, you know, he says he's open for you to come, and so we'd love for you to come. And so I say, yeah, I'd love to go. And so one uh, Saturday afternoon, about 7, 8 o'clock, me and my friend go to the bar. And as you're driving by that bar, you see Pastor Matt pull up and get out and walk in the bar with one of his friends, right? What are you going to think? Hey, look at here. One of the pastors is saucing on Saturday night, right? Right? And so it's an action that's perceived. Now, I could have the best intentions in the world, right? But it's what others perceive, and so we have to be careful. We have to be very careful about uh, the way in which we live our lives because uh, we are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. It is not just the pastor's responsibilities to be the example. We are all followers of Jesus. We all read the same Bible, and so we all adhere, we all follow Jesus based on the standards of the gospel. And so he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate that. Imitate their faith. And so we should lead people to Jesus. And so it's just a good thought. I wanted to bring that up to remind you that in everything that we say and everything that we do, we are ambassadors. We are representatives of the king. And so 
those who finished well, uh, they faced the same temptations that we face. Listen, to, the Bible says there's no temptation known unto man, right, that, that uh, Jesus hasn't faced. It's the same thing for the people that have come before you and that have lived for Jesus, that the same temptations that we face, they faced, right? The same things that they dealt with, the same struggles, the same temptations, the same struggles that they dealt with, we deal with those same things. And yet the Bible says that they persevered, that they finished well, that the outcome of their life was well done, good, and faithful servant. And so we should consider the fact that there's nothing new that we're going to experience that hasn't been experienced before. If we learned anything from the Ecclesiastes study is that there is nothing new under the sun, right? And so as we uh, encounter different things in our lives, it's nothing that someone else has not encountered before, and so it's not something that is insurmountable or that we can't overcome. Even as difficult as it may be, that's what we have the body for. And so those who did that, well, they finished well. And so as we consider this and we look at, uh, you know, we consider for our own lives, well, how do I finish well? Well, that's a great question. So how do we do that? How do we finish well? How do we imitate their faith? And so the very next verse, he jumps into uh, the practical application of that. So he says in verse 8, he said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That would be a very, very good verse for you to memorize. Jesus is the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he is the same forever. You see, the same Jesus that those who came before us served, the same Jesus that those who came before us lived for, and even the same Jesus that some have given their lives for is the same Jesus that we follow today. And so the struggles and the way that, that people, you know, I hear stories of uh, people who say, you know, their parents died when they were young or uh, they experienced a traumatic event in their life when they were young or they went through a tragedy uh, when they were a young adult. And we look at those situations and we say, how do people make it through those situations? I'm sure you've seen that. Maybe you have experienced something of that nature. And you ask yourself the question, how is it possible to survive? How is it to make it? How can people do that? How do they have the internal fortitude to make it through those situations? Well, it's because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus who helped them through those struggles, the same Jesus that helps us in the past is the same Jesus that is present in our struggles today. And so uh, it is the same Jesus that they served. And so what a great contrast between uh, the changeableness, which is a word that I made up, uh, of humanity versus the eternality of Jesus. Think about that. Think about how much change exists within humans. I mean, think of all the new Alabama fans that came Alabama fans when uh, Saban became coach, right? All these bandwagon fans. I've been a Clemson fan for, I mean, all of three or four months. I mean, y'all need to be more, you need to stay with your team, right? But we change all the time, right? We change all, everything about us is about change. Everything about humanity is about change, but everything about Jesus lasts forever. Listen, I'm sure I've probably been guilty of this. I try to be intentionally not, uh, but you probably know some people uh, that one day you see them and uh, they're happy as a lark, best friend, nicest person you'd see, and then the next day they may bite you if you get too close. Right? You've been around people like that? Well, that's because... Human personality never ceases to change. One day they're nice, one day they're not. One day they're happy, one day they're not. We're very emotional people. That's just the bottom line, right? We change a lot. And there's in, you know, certainly there's outside influences, external influences that uh, cause that. There's internal influences that cause that. Uh, one of the verses that I try to stick in my brain and remind myself of constantly is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. So if you want to try not to change as much, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says, um, to uh, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, to think on these things. And uh, I have to remind myself of that when difficulty or negativity or whatever comes about. And uh, so that's a constant battle that we all face because change is inevitable, right? Everything always changes. However, 
The only thing that doesn't change is the gospel. The gospel never changes. There is no such thing as new and improved Christianity. No such thing. All these organizations that are out there that print new literature and say they have a new word for God are lying. That is not true. And I'm going to show that to you here in just a second. You see, the gospel never changes. And so everything that your parents learned about the gospel and everything that your grandparents learned about the gospel and everything that Billy Graham preached about the gospel is the exact same thing that you and I read in the gospels today. It is the exact same thing that is preached from our pulpits in, uh, in the sanctuary today because the gospel never changes. And so for us, that is an encouragement. So how do we know that there is no such thing that is new and improved Christianity? Well, uh, Jude chapter 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, key word, common salvation, I found it necessary to write uh, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. Remember in Hebrews uh, 9.22 is that without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin, right? And so he says that Jesus died once for all. And now we see that the gospel was delivered to us, that our faith that was once delivered for all the saints, once delivered for all the saints. And so for us, we can be encouraged that, listen, there's nothing... If somebody comes on TV, and uh, we were joking earlier before church, you know, your best life now, and you know everything's going to be new and improved today, and this is the new you. No, it's not. No, it's not. Everything around you is crumbling because sin is running rampant. And the only hope that we have is the gospel. And the only thing that we can cling to is the gospel. And the, the only thing in your life that doesn't change, that's worth living for, is the gospel. You're not going to live your best life now. The only way that happens is if you allow the gospel to live through you. That's your best life. And so as we see this... You know, we hear people, oh, well, if you'll send me money or, you know, if you have just better faith. Remember we talked about that uh, with James and how James was one of the first people that Jesus called. He was one, uh, he was in Jesus' D group, if you will. And yet James was beheaded for no reason. A senseless murder by Herod for no reason. So did that mean that James didn't have good faith and yet Peter was put in prison to have the same end result and yet Peter uh, was uh, removed, he was rescued from prison? So did that mean that Peter had greater faith than James? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that God is sovereign and He chose to use Peter and yet He allowed James to die. It didn't have anything to do with the faith or the lack thereof of James. And people that tell us otherwise... Are, uh, that, that's heresy. That's not true. They're lying about that. And so for us, we have to go back to what is foundational. You see, our faith was delivered once for all. There was no need for a change. There's no need for a new word because the, the gospel is sufficient. You see, what change does is it indicates imperfection. It indicates a need for something better. You ever had somebody tell you one thing and then the next time you saw them they told you, something different about that same thing, and then you saw them again and they told you something different about that same thing. You ever, anybody ever experienced that? I quit listening to people who are like that. Right? Trick me once, shame on you. Trick me twice, shame on me. And so as we see here, change indicates imperfection, that there needs to be something better. And so if they're, well, you know what, this is actually, that was uh, not what it meant. This is actually what it means. And so on and so forth, it continues to change. And the reason that we gravitate towards that, when there's some new preacher that comes out and has this new great book, and, and everybody, oh, I've never heard that before. Oh, I've got to read that. Oh, that must be something new. Well, the reason for that is that our souls long for something solid and consistent. Our, our souls long for that. We yearn for consistency in our life. The most broken system, arguably, in the world is the CPS system. The most inconsistent system in the world. And that's one of the things that I think that draws the believer to that, is that we want to fix the broken. That we have a heart for those that are vulnerable, right? And we want to help those people. We want to... We want to get in the middle of that and we want to say there is consistency. The gospel is consistent. There's framework that works, right? That's what we want to do. We want to get in the middle of that because change and it's constantly changing, it indicates that it's not fixed yet. Well, I have good news for you. The gospel didn't need fixing. Amen? 
And so when Jesus came and He delivered it once for all, it didn't need any rehabilitation. It didn't need revamping. It didn't need a new director. Jesus did it perfect the first time. And our souls long for that. We want consistency in our life. I want people that are the same. I want people in my life that when I see them today, they're smiling, and I see them tomorrow, they're smiling because joy doesn't come from the circumstance. It comes from the source of Jesus, right? And so this, uh, this, this consistency is actually a theological term. You may have heard of it before. If not, you'll learn something tonight. The theological term for God's unchanging nature is immutability. That God is immutable. That He doesn't change. <clears throat> now, to be honest with you, it would be sufficient for me to get up here tonight and say one thing, and that is, God doesn't change. And our response to that would be that we worship for the next 55 minutes, and that'd probably be the best service we've ever had on a Wednesday night. Because if we really understand the fact that God doesn't change, it would cause us to have that response, and that would be sufficient for us tonight. And that God doesn't change. You see, immutability means that God has an unchanging nature. It simply means that God is unchangeable, and thus He is unchanging. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. Immutability doesn't mean that God is immobile. It doesn't mean that God is inactive. It doesn't mean that God cannot it means that God will not. Right? God can do anything He wants. So it doesn't mean that God is not active in your life when it says that God can't change and you have this situation that is new to you in your life. It's not new to God. And so it's not that He is immobile or inactive, uh, but it does mean that He is never inconsistent. It means that Jesus is, again, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not inconsistent. It does mean that He is not growing. That is exactly what that means. That God has no need to grow. He is not obtaining new information. He is not learning more about you and how to better meet your needs or learning how to better minister to you. He already knows exactly what you need and how to minister to you. Right? He is not growing. And it certainly means that He is not developing. You know, when the world was first created and there were, you know, a few thousand, a few million people on earth, it wasn't easier for God to keep up with them then as it is now. He is not developing. He is fully capable of handling anything that may come up in our life. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. Now, this describes God both in His unchanging nature and who He is and in His character and what He does. So this describes God in both His nature and His character. You see on your handout here uh, in Psalm 102 and verse 25, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. This is a description of the God that you and I serve. See, this is what we long for. We long for uh, consistency in our life. We long for someone who is in absolute control. You know, one of the things that we've learned through the foster care system is that uh, those children respond very well to a strong male figure in their life. If they want someone who know, that has authority and that treats authority correctly, Right? And that's what we long for as, as, as children, as orphans, before we come to know Jesus, is that we long for someone that has authority and that uses it the right way. Amen? And that's what God does in our life. You see, His nature and His character doesn't change. His years have no end. This includes uh, not only God's being, but it also includes God's purposes and it includes God's promises. Now think about that. If God's purposes do not change, then that means that whatever it is that God created you for, whatever, whatever it is that God created me for, guess what? He still intends on accomplishing that mission. Right? Because His purposes don't change. Now listen, you may say, well, I moved states, or I failed, or I sinned, or I did a terrible thing, or all these circumstances and situations have just prevented God from ever being able to do anything in my life. That's 100% wrong. Because God is immutable. Remember, that's what we just learned. 
And that means that His purposes for you never change. So whatever it is that He set out for you to accomplish, guess what? You will accomplish that. You will accomplish that. Now, it may not be on your own volition, but it, it will definitely be because of His strength through you. And it's the same thing for God's promises. What if God's promises only applied to you and they didn't apply to me? What if God's promises were circumstantial? What if, well, if you can memorize half of the New Testament, then my promises apply. Or if your last name ends in A through Z or A through M, then all of my promises apply. Or my promises apply to everyone who was born before 1965, and I have new promises for people that were born after 1965. Right? How confusing would that be? And so I know this all sounds silly and minuscule, but if you really think about the fact that God's promises don't change, that means that they not only apply to me, they apply to you and they apply to everyone else around you. And so when we declare the goodness of God, when we live the gospel out in our own context, we can with confidence say that God says that all things work to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Not just for Baptists, not just for people that are 50 and older, but for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, right? We can say to those who have had an addiction, that are in prison, that are on death row, that have done heinous crimes, we can say that the Bible declares that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no qualifications to that. The promises of God stand for everyone. What if the promises of God changed? What a mess things would be. We would be in a knot. But the promises of God don't change. They last forever. So why, why is this so important? Why is this so important? You say, well, you know what? You learned a fancy word. This is, you know, theology. You know, immutable, that's a great word. But when, what is that? how does that apply to me? How is that going to... Apply to my context. Well, if God was constantly changing, there would be no such thing as absolute truth. You see, that's what's wrong with the world today, is the world believes that there is no absolute truth. That the Bible that was written two, three, four thousand years ago doesn't apply today. That it's subjective, right? Well, that's what the world says. There'd be no absolute truth if God changed. We wouldn't be able to stand on the, the Word of God which says that the Word of God will stand forever. The flower and the grass may fade, but the Word of God will stand forever, right? That's the declaration that the Word of God says. The best-selling book of all time, the Bible, declares that. And so if the Word of God changed, well, then there would be no absolute truth. We would have no standard by which to apply life. We wouldn't know how to live our lives. But knowing that God never changes gives us peace. T knowing that there is one absolute truth, that there is one standard. So when the fa world falls in disarray as it is today, when you have absolutely no idea what to do next, guess what you have? You've got 66 books at your fingertips. You can say, God, what is it that you want to speak to me about today. God, what is it that I should do in this situation? God, what should I do with this person? How, how should I minister to them? God, what is it that you'd have for me to do? We went through a study of that and how God speaks. It's called Crossroads. You can go back on the website and listen to it about how God speaks to us through the Word of God. It's because we have a standard. We have one absolute truth. And so what this does for you and me is it allows us to live with conviction for the purposes by which He calls us to live. Now listen, follow me here. <clears throat> if there's no absolute truth, and God so loved the world that none should perish, but He did not say, just think with me, what if John 14, 6 wasn't in the Bible? What if the Bible did not say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me? What if it didn't say that? So then guess what would happen? We would all be creating our own ways to get to God, Right? I mean, that's essentially what's happened anyway. And so we'd say, well, you know what? For you, you live in India, and so the best thing for you to do is this. Oh, you live in Brazil, so here's what you've got to do in Brazil. If you, if you do this, then you'll be able to inherit eternal life. Right? Or, or we would say, you know, here's what worked for me. Here's what made me feel good inside. All of the things that I'm explaining to you exist today. All of these things in which humanity has created to try to reach God. But we know because of what, uh, because of the question, 
in uh, John chapter 14 that Jesus declared that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so for that, based on that truth, then you and I can declare that no one goes to heaven except for those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? And so when we go out and we share the gospel, when I minister to my neighbor who's sick, when you minister to your coworker or friend who's sick, when we rally around those who are in deep, dark places in addiction or desperation or jail or whatever it may be, guess what we can declare? My situation and experiences will not change your life, but there is one thing that will. And it's the declaration of John chapter 14 and verse 6, right? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no matter what you've done, you still have a chance to have eternal life with God the Father. Right? And so we can have conviction based on that. And so when we go to Brazil on mission, and we go to these places that have never uh, been exposed to the gospel, we're not going in and saying, you've got, to you've got to hear this amazing story of how God created the heavens and the earth, which is an amazing story. But guess what that doesn't do? That doesn't lead them to the cross. Now we do that. We tell them about Genesis and we lead them through the Old Testament in storying. But if we went over there and had a different message every single time, guess what? They're going to be confused. and They're going to say, these Americans come over here and they've got great stories, but which one is true, right? But every story that we tell on the mission field leads to one thing, and that is Jesus, right? That's the gospel. That's what never changes. And so because of that, we can live with conviction uh, for the purpose of, of which God has called us to live. And so therefore, immutability, God's immutability becomes a great source of comfort. Right? When you lay your head down at night, you know, we thankfully live uh, in America. Uh, but what if we lived in North Korea? What if you're a believer in North Korea and you lay your head down at night and you hear sirens all the time and you got state-run media and everything you hear is filtered and you're like, what is truth? And you lay your head down at night every single night. Do you think that the believer who lives in North Korea has the same comfort of eternal life that you and I have in America? Yes, they do. Because why? Because they serve the same Jesus. And that if life ended tomorrow for them in North Korea or life ended today for us in America, it's still the same Jesus that we'll stand before. And so that gives us comfort in knowing that God doesn't change regardless of geography. You see, God is constant in His wrath against sin. God, is, God hates sin. God is against sin. But He is equally constant in His forgiveness in response to faith and repentance. And so for you and for me, when we approach Jesus, the Bible said, whoever called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, you will be saved. There are no contingencies to that, right? And so when we approach the throne and we confess our sin, right, and we ask for forgiveness and we repent of our sin, we turn from our sin and we walk towards Jesus, when we do that, we are promised what? Eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life, right? That's what salvation is. And so it is, God is equally constant in His forgiveness for every person who approaches Jesus and requests forgiveness based on their repentance and the finished work of Jesus, right? They get what? They get salvation. That's why every person in this room that is saved tonight is saved because you had just as equal of a chance as, as every other human who breathed air on this earth to approach the throne of God and request forgiveness for your sins. Every one of us had the same opportunity. Every person that you encounter tomorrow, whether they receive it or not, has the opportunity because God is constant in His forgiveness that they can receive salvation through forgiveness through Jesus. Right? Everyone can have it. No matter, there's nothing that you can do, right? To, there, there's nothing you can do to separate you. The Bible says, Romans 8, nothing separates us from the love of God. So we just simply, everyone has the chance to do that. That's what immutability, that's why immutability matters. That if God says, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not receiving anyone who's had 7,000 sins, right? You see what I mean? We could be really silly about this, but that's why that matters. And so we can know that we have peace with God based on His promise to forgive those who repent and ask for forgiveness. There's no greater feeling than having peace with God. Amen. Peace with God. And so God's immutability, God's unchanging nature, grants us the assurance that He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And you can write Philippians 1.6 out there on the side. 
And if you grew up in church, you sang, He's still working on me. And if you didn't grow up in church, you can leave here tonight singing, He's still working on me. Because <laughs> He's still working on you. And He's still working on me. And that's the promise that we have and that God declared through uh, His servant Paul that He will complete a good work in you. Now, if God changed, we would ask the question, God, do you still plan on doing that? But He does, because He doesn't change. And you think about it, as I was thinking about this, and you know, just you know, from a theological uh, perspective uh, of, of all the implications of Christianity, the death, the birth, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the conversion of Paul, uh, the rescue of... All the things that happen, you know, in the Gospels. I thought about that. And I thought about all the things that are true. You know, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than there is for the existence of Adolf Hitler. I think about all of those things. I thought about uh, the reasons why 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, you know, here's why I believe Jesus is real and true and the resurrection happened and here's why I hang my life on that fact, Right? I think about all those facts, right? So we talk about, uh, when you talk about the gospel, when I talk about the gospel, we talk about the same thing. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus' father and mother were Joseph and Mary. Jesus was born in a manger, right? Jesus had half-brothers. We know that James was a half-brother. We know that uh, Jesus grew up. Uh, you know, we know Jesus at age 12 was in the temple teaching. We know Jesus started His ministry when He was around 30 years old. We know Jesus died when He was about 33 years old. We know Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. We know He stood before Herod. We know all those facts, right? We could go on and on and on. We know all of those facts. And we have assurance of all of those facts, right? We read them uh, through historical documents with Josephus and others. And we read them, of course, through the Gospels. Well, think about that in another context. What if I told you, Hey, listen, uh, you know, you ever studied World War II? My grandfather was in World War II. It was a battle, right? It was a world, uh, world war. Germany was involved. France was involved. The United States was a lot of countries involved. And here's what happened. There was this man named Hitler, and he wanted to eradicate the Jews and, and, and some other people, groups. And so what he decided to do is build these concentrations. Right, and so we just go through all the history of, of World War II and what happened and all the things, that, and how many millions of Jews died and, and you know, the, all the facts that happened at Normandy Beach and, you know, uh, all, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, all those things that happened. We think about all those things. Those are facts, right? If you're a teacher in here, you teach those as history. And we say, hey, those things happened. Now, what, what happened is when we talk about those things, we talk about those as facts, right? We can't go back and change Normandy Beach. We, we would love to, right? Especially for the families who lost loved ones, but we can't. And we can't go back and change uh, anything that happened. Pearl Harbor, we can't change that. But it happened, right? It's factual. There's still a ship entombed in the water in Hawaii, right? So all those things are factual. And we look back at those and we all agree on those that they happen. Why? Because they don't change. The facts of, of World War II don't change. It doesn't matter if you believe that Hitler did that or not. It still happened. It doesn't matter if they try to deconstruct uh, the statues and monuments of all the things that happened in World War II. It doesn't change it. It still happened. And it's the same thing with the gospel. It doesn't matter if the world receives that as truth or not. It still happened. There's still evidence of Jesus being true and real, not just historically, right? But as the songs say, I know He's real because I talked to Him today, right? Amen. And so that's what facts matter. That's why unchangeableness matters is because that's the God that we serve. And we apply it to every other context in our life. With full assurance, we talk about all the things that we know to be fact. Well, we can talk about that same thing being fact when we talk about the gospel because it doesn't change. You see, uh, in a world that is constantly changing, we can have confidence in knowing this unchanging nature of God is present. We can have confidence. And so what happens is, with all the change that happens around us, we look to uh, Hebrews and we, we see as we've journeyed through Hebrews and, and you've not noticed it, and I'm going to tie it all together for you here, which is incredible, but the writer of Hebrews in God's sovereign providence, 
He gave us examples all the way throughout Hebrews to say, you know what, Jesus is the same yesterday. You see, Jesus, the yesterday Jesus was given, uh, He gave us that example in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. He said, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. So He is uh, referencing something in the past. So in Hebrews 5, 7, the yesterday Jesus. Then we see in Hebrews 4, 15, the today Jesus. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the today Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Why? Because that is the present day Today, Jesus, and last but not least, He gives us the example in Hebrews 7, 25 of the forever Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's the Jesus that exists yesterday, that is present today, and that exists forever. And so because of that, as we get to our, towards the end here, he says, Do not be led away then in verse 9 by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those uh, devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So not only was persecution on the forefront of their minds, but also there was this strange teaching that combined eating practices with their Christian faith. Now we just walked through that in Acts with Cornelius and that experience with the Jews and the Gentiles. And you know part of that was still happening here at the church uh, written in Hebrews. And so he says, listen, don't let these diverse and strange teachings lead you astray. You see, by measuring... By measuring things against God's unchanging nature, we should be able to detect false teachings and not be led astray by them. We ought to be able to detect that. We ought to be able to say, okay, well, that is not true. And here's why I know it's not true, because here's what the Bible says, and the Bible doesn't change, right? And so we can measure God's unchanging nature against those false teachings. And by doing so, we ought to be able to avoid strange and various teachings. You see, I love John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Simon Peter answered verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Verse 66, is, the Bible says many turn away and they stop following Jesus. And Jesus turned around and said, Hey, are you guys going to leave too? And this is what Simon said. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the words that we bank our life on. Right? That's the words that we devote our life to. And so all of these false teachings that come and go and they waver uh, in our lives, well, we say, no, where else would we go, God? You have the words of eternal life. And so for us, once we have obtained the real thing, we should measure truth then by the real deal, by the unchanging nature of God not by the counterfeits that are around it. We shouldn't look at uh, a strange or various teaching and say, now, how does that measure up to another false teaching? No. We measure that by what? By what is real. You know what the Treasury Department for the United States does? They have uh, agents, of course, Treasury agents, who uh, their job is uh, the fight of counterfeit money. And so if you wanted to be an agent for uh, the Treasury Department and your job was to count... Uh, to fight uh, counterfeit bills, guess what you would spend your time doing? Now, logically, what you would think is, well, you'd spend your time studying all the fakes so that you would know what they look like and their, their characteristics and you know, how they're made, right? That would make sense. But that's not what they do. They don't spend any time studying counterfeits. They spend all of their time studying the real deal. They, study all, they spend all of their time studying and learning every nuance of the dollar bill, the $50 bill, the 100 They know everything there is to know about those bills. They're not wasting their time studying something that's not real. They want to be able to instantly identify that's real and here's how I know it's real because they spend their time studying the real deal. 
You see, there's always going to be those in our world who seek to add something to the message of the cross. Always. But there is nothing that needs to be added to the message of the cross. There's always going to be somebody who comes out tomorrow. We'll hear it. I remember in 2011, I was pastoring in Virginia, and uh, Harry Campo came out and said, hey, the world's going to end the Mayan calendar. Uh, pack your bags, sell your stuff, get a camper, whatever. Uh, we're all going to be raptured in May of 2011. Well, guess what? It's 2019. So he came out in, uh, in July. Oh, you know what? My bad. I had it wrong. It's actually October. Uh, hey, everybody should still sell their things, uh, you know, pull together and buy a camper. And October came and went, and then he died. And it's 2019, and we're still here, right? Because everybody's always trying to add something new. Uh, you know, now, guess what? It's, it's going to have the appearance of real, right? Your best life now sounds wonderful. I want my best life now, right? It sounds great, but when you study the real deal then you realize, you know what? God doesn't change. That's not the real deal. Somebody's always going to be trying to add to it. So one of the things we learned in seminary is this, is if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. I could give you some illustrations of that, but for time tonight... We will pass, uh, but I've had some experiences where, oh, I got something new, you know, God told me to do this, and it's, it's a new revelation from God. No, it's not. It's not true. God has spoken once for all. The faith was delivered once for all. This canon is complete. There's nothing left to say because God said everything that we need to know. Right? Now, God still speaks to us today. He's not giving new revelations. If it doesn't line up with His Word, He didn't say it. So, if it's not new... Uh, if it's new, it's not true. So these additions, what are, they're simply distractions in your life. They're, they're simply a, an attempt by the enemy to get you off track and to get you to pursue something that's not real. That's all that they are. And so what we have to do is, as our emotions change, remember the people that smile at you one day and frown at you the next? As our emotions change, as our circumstances change, we must remain anchored to the fact that we follow a never-changing God that He set out to complete a good work in you and that He will complete it, that His promises never change. You see in verse 11, He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, they are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach that He endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so He says, look, you know, just as Jesus was taken outside the camp, like in the Old Testament, the carcasses of the sacrifices were taken outside the camp, so you and I live outside the camp. That this is not our home. And he says in verse 14 that we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come that Jesus will come, that He will rapture His church. And so what is our response then to that is in verse 15. He says, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then he goes back to what he started with. In verse 9, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. He says, Let them do this with joy. Remember, he starts off by saying, Remember your leaders, imitate their faith. And then he ends here by saying, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. So all the change in the e-sanctuary... Receive it with joy and not with groaning, right? This, uh, you know, being down here in the barn, you know, I'm, you know, I'd rather us not be in the barn. But guess what? I gotta, I've got to receive it with joy and not with groaning, because he says, look, he says, for that would be no advantage to you. And so what we've got to remember is that we have an unchanging God, 
and we're going to change and we're going to mess things up. Well, we got to anchor ourselves to the thing that doesn't change. The waves are going to change and sometimes hurricanes will come and sometimes the winds will blow and sometimes we, you know, it's, it's going to be calm as ice. But we still have to be anchored to the same thing and that is Jesus. That is the gospel. So I want to give you three takeaways as we leave this part of Hebrews chapter 13. That we live our lives, our response is that we live our lives in gratitude and worship to this reality. When you, tonight, when you pray in the morning, when you pray, thank God that He doesn't change. Spend time in gratitude of what that means for you. And it starts with your salvation. That He said, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And thousands of years later, you did that and it still works, right? That's the reality of the gospel not changing. And so we should live our lives in gratitude to that, and we ought to worship God for the reality that He doesn't change. Number two, we ought to seek to live consistent lives marked by the gospel. Nobody likes inconsistent. I know you're going to have bad days. I understand that happens. Every, everything is not daisies and roses. I know that's. I know that. I live. I work every day just like you. I know exactly how all that works. I get up and take the kids to school. I understand every bit of that. We all do the same thing, but we ought to try to live a life marked by consistency because we're ambassadors for the gospel, right? And so if, oh, I don't feel like it today. Well, guess what? Feelings don't dictate who Jesus is. And so we ought to live our lives based on the consistency of the gospel, not on how we feel. You're going to wake up some days and you're not going to feel like you're a Christian. You're going to wake up some days and you're going to feel, you're not going to feel but, uh, for doing good for your neighbor. Guess what? That doesn't, you think when Jesus was in the garden and He was sweating drops of blood that He felt like going to the cross? No, He didn't. But what He said was this, Not my will, but thine be done. Right? God's will is the pinnacle of our life that we should accomplish. And that's the thing that doesn't change. So we ought to live lives that are consistent. Live consistently. And number three, cling to, stand up for, and boldly declare the unchanging absolute truth that is found only in the gospel. Become gospel fluent in the gospel. If you only learn two or three things about Jesus that you can uh, tell someone, that is that Jesus loves you, He died for you, and He desires a relationship with you. Those are three very foundational things of Christianity. But we ought to cling to the fact that those things remain to be true today for everyone. And because of that, we ought to declare that boldly, that He did it for me, He can do it for you. He doesn't change. And that ought to cause worship for us. And so I hope this encourages you as it has encouraged me this week, that God is the exact same. He is the same God that Billy Graham declared. He is the same God that you and I declare. And when we're dead and gone, if Jesus tarries, it'll be the same God that our children and our grandchildren declare because He doesn't change. That is the God that we serve. And so may we live lives marked by the gospel, consistently declaring that reality. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray tonight. God, thank You for the fact that You do not change. God, that we can come to you and that your word says, uh, come to me all who are...